Tony and I have six kids. We've raised the kids in the church. They've gone to church their whole life, and um, life was good. Years ago, when Tony and I were working with the youth group, there was one uh, child that was struggling in with with drugs, and I remember we'd you know, have discussions, it's like, you know, well, you know, his parents just need to do this, or they just need to do that, and what we found out is, until you're in this mess, you don't know anything. He, Nick grew up in the church, and he started drifting when um, the the youth minister of our church was, was let go, and that was his connection, but really, um, the, the deceit of all the drugs is what pulled him away, because the kids that are involved in this, None of them are going, you know, they're not going to church, they're not being fed the word, they're not being told truth. They have a, uh, a skate park in our town here. Right off the bat, you know, uh, Marianne and I were a little concerned about the environment there. And, you know, he assured us that, you know, that they weren't doing drugs. And, and, and I think at that time, they probably weren't. When you're around that, that eventually, you know, someone's going to, you know, try it and then, you know, try to get someone else to try it. And so he, he got exposed to it uh, through the skate park. He started, um, I think, for me, I remember him being starting to get angry, always angry at us. I was like, you know, not understanding where the anger was coming from. And then, and then it rolled into uh, disobedience and disrespect. Yeah, with the, with the disrespect, I'm, I'm not too sure that it's not just the society that we live in now, that, that kids tend to just not respect their parents. There were a number of times where he would, he would stand and get in my face and raise his hand up and, you know, and, and draw back to hit me. Uh, I didn't have that with my father. I never, you know, stood up and challenged my father. So this was all a new concept to me. He started getting out of control and just partied and drugged and to the point of he sold his car for rent and drugs. During all this, um, the, our feeling, my feelings is, uh, of being a parent have been all over the map from, from, okay, what did I do wrong? We have six kids and we raised them all the same. So why is it that one was stricken with this? I mean, we didn't treat him any differently. As being the spiritual leader of the house, yes. I, I, I sit there and I think that have I failed my family? Did I not take them to church enough? Did, you know, did I not get them plugged in enough? My heart breaks, you know, to see that he's going down a path that that's not what God wants him to go down. What I've learned is I, I, as desperately as I want to just tell him he get it, it doesn't happen that way. He has to get it on his own. Good morning, church. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we take comfort today in knowing that whenever we hurt, that you are close to us. And Lord, we just confess to you this morning that we need your presence in our lives. We need to be aware of your presence in our lives. Lord, when we don't know what to do as parents, we thank you that as we sang just a few moments ago, that we are not alone. That Lord, you walk with us, that you come alongside us and I thank you for the comfort and the comfort that we find in your word that never changes. Lord, our circumstances change, our situations change, but you are the, the one constant in our life that we have, and we thank you for that. And Lord, I ask you to be close to your people today as we talk about yet another facet of parenting. Lord, I know that in this church there are a number of, of parents and grandparents 
that are hurting very much today, Lord, because of, of watching a loved one in their life make poor choices and poor decisions. And I pray today that you would give us your peace and that you would give us your hope today. We ask you to help us grow in, in your grace, Lord, and in trusting you today. And it's in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray and all God's people said together, amen. Well, good morning, church. Another full house today. We want to welcome you. We're continuing a series we started a few weeks ago called Ruling the Roost. And what we've been talking about in this series is that we don't want parent-centered families where we say, we rule the roost, you know, kind of with the iron fist. We don't want kid-centered families where some kids rule the roost. What we've been saying we desperately need in our lives, in our church We need God-centered families. We need Him to rule the roost. Amen. We need Jesus to be the center of our lives and, and and, and our families. And I just appreciate so much the authenticity and the transparency of this couple who shared their story and the brokenness in their home and in their family. And, you know, I love the Andy Griffith video that we showed last week, but as we said last week, this isn't Mayberry, right? I mean, we wish that it was like Mayberry. We wish that we always had a laugh track at the end of everything that we say and that everything always tightly and perfectly is wrapped up at the end of the episode, you know, and we all feel good. But we know that this video that we just saw is, a real, is really a little more truer picture of the world in which we live with where, in where, where everything's not perfectly all nicely packaged together. That there's a lot of brokenness in our families. And can I just, uh, just all of us, can we acknowledge, and we did this in the first, seri- uh, first uh, service this morning, where we just acknowledge that we're all, we're all messed up a little bit. We all have brokenness in our homes. We all have struggles. There's not a single family here that is perfectly, you know, all packaged nice and neat all together. Amen. Can we just say that all together? Amen. I mean, we're not all, we don't have it all together. And it just really made me think of this last week when, when I got a, a, just a note from a, from a dear lady in our church and she's struggling and, and struggling in raising teenagers. And one of the things that she said to me was, you know, sometimes I feel whenever I look around our church, it looks like other parents seem to be doing everything right. And so, and she's kind of was really saying, I kind of feel like I'm alone. I feel like I'm alone and, and feel like, you know, um, I'm kind of going through this by myself. And, and really my heart just for her was, I don't want her to feel alone. I want her to know that not only does God walk with her through this, but we as a church family, that's what we're here for, is to walk together with one another as we go through the hardships in our families. Amen? And one of the things she said, any suggestions? And what I would say in response to that is there are a number of things that we could talk about. But one thing that I think is so important for all of us is that we, and we've been pushing life groups and not just because we get, you know, a a bonus if you're in a life group or anything like that. We believe in them. We believe in walking together with one another. And if you're a hurting parent or just hurting in any kind of way, it's good to have the body of Christ come around you and support you and love you and encourage you and a great opportunity to sign up as we have our Teach Us to Pray series that's going to be launching soon is now. Get in one of those groups. My wife, Hope, and I, we're in a life group. We're so thankful for our life group who's walked alongside us whenever we've had challenges in our life, and they pray for us, and we pray for them, and that's what a group is all about. It's doing life together. What we know is this. We need each other. Amen, church? We need each other in our lives as we go through difficulties, and that we're all broken. We need Jesus. Well, we've been talking about 
about parenting and some of the brokenness and the struggles that come along with that. And, and I, I think it's been a good series. One of the things, though, that, that I've really tried to be sure that everyone is with me on this is that I don't think I'm the expert in parenting, okay? I don't in any way uh, feel that way about myself, and I'm, I'm on, I don't have all the answers. I'm still on the journey with you. And so I really, I laughed to myself when I went back and I looked at some of my past messages some of the past series that I, that I have done, you know, and when we talked about parenting and how much they've changed through the years, I've kind of laughed about that, you know, because I, I realized that very early on in some of my parenting messages, I was very kind of a matter of fact and very dogmatic about certain things and, you know, and very, I would say, formulaic, if, as in, in, if that's even a word. I gave you a formula and said, you know, here's, here's this formula, here's this this recipe, plug this in perfectly, and you know what? Presto, you're going to have the perfect family, all right? And I looked at some of those, and I cringed at some of my past messages. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe I even thought that. And gradually, something happened. You know what happened? We had kids, okay? And I started realizing this isn't as easy as, as what I kind of thought it would be. Or I can't absolutely control every single aspect of their lives. And, and I can't even control myself a lot of times. And, and so I've really wanted this series not to be about formulas or recipes or saying that if you'll do this exactly the way that, that we as a pastor or whatever, we think you should, you know, that follow our lead in this, okay? And we should be leading, no doubt, but we should be leading in the sense that we're looking to our perfect model who is our Heavenly Father, amen? And that's what we've done every week is we've tried to point you to the perfect model of our Heavenly Father who is the perfect parent, okay? And we've been saying saying, let's imitate him in our parenting. Parenting, we've said, is one of the things that definitely can bring you the greatest joy in your life. And some of you have expressed some of those joys with me. And I have great joy in parenting Trinity and in parenting Luke. And, and Hope and I have great joy in that. But I also know this, as we face challenges in our parenting and we've, we've watched our kids go through some things, and it's hard to watch your kids go through things I also know that some of you, some of the deepest pains and sorrows that you've experienced in your life have come through some of your parenting experiences. And I've watched moms and dads who have cried and, and, and have broken down in front of me and have asked for prayer and have been desperate in their prayers. I've been in prayer meetings with, with a group of people where that was what the whole focus of that prayer time was about, was about, we realized we were all talking about the hurts that were coming along with our kids. So I know that some of you, this has been something that has been a very difficult for some of you, a series that's been difficult as we've gone through some of this because some of your kids are going through some difficult things. Some of you are going through hard things in your parenting right now. And it's maybe sometimes, just as that mom said, she kind of feels alone. And maybe some of you kind of feel that. Some of you would even say, Barn, I feel like I've done my best with my kids. I feel like I've, I've done the best that I could. You know, I wasn't the perfect parent. But for some reason, just like that mom and dad in the video, for some reason, I don't know what happened. You know, I don't know what went wrong, but for some reason, my child has decided to walk away from me or they've walked away from God and they're far off. And I am hurting today because of that. And I don't know what to do. And some of you would say that your heart is very much broken. And did you pick up on the, what the dad said? He said, I feel like I failed. 
I feel like I failed as a spiritual leader. I feel like I failed as a, as a father. The mom said this, where did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong? And so they really, they really feel like they failed. And a lot of you maybe have felt that particular way. And for some of you, maybe as you think about a rebellious child, maybe it's a rebellious child you're dealing with. For some of you, maybe it's not a child. Maybe it's a rebellious sibling that you have in your life and you've watched them kind of wander off and it's broken your heart because you love them. A brother or sister, some of you, you have a friend that maybe has rebelled and they're living a rebellious kind of life. For some of you, maybe it's kind of flipped all the way around and it's your parents that have rebelled and you're, you're looking at this going, what in the world happened there? And maybe they're kind of they're kind of acting junior high. Sorry, junior high kids, all right? Sorry, Trinity. And they're, they're acting junior high on you or whatever. And you're like, and so you don't know what to do with the parent that is maybe living in rebellion. And you're like, what in the world do I do with this? How do I handle this? Well, I want you to know I've been praying for you a lot this week. If that's kind of where you are. I know some of you this morning are hurting because of some bad choices that someone that's in your life has made and you're struggling and maybe it's a child or maybe it's a parent or whatever. But I want to invite you to go with me to a very familiar passage of Scripture. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look in chapter 15 this morning and spend a few moments there looking at a passage of Scripture that most of us are quite familiar with. You may not even be a Christian and you know this story. It's such a, uh, just a, a familiar story when we talk about the, the story of the lost son, the prodigal son. But here's what I, f- I felt led just to kind of set some things up before we get into this story, okay? Go ahead and go with me to Luke 15. But here's the first thing that I want to say to you, and I hope that you'll receive this today, is that God understands the parental pain of rebellion. If you are one that is deeply hurting today and you're struggling with this and you feel alone and feel like nobody gets it or whatever, you know, or you're looking around our church and you think that others aren't kind of experiencing what you're experiencing, I want you to hear first that God gets it. He gets and understands that pain that comes along with a rebellious person that is loved in his life. In Isaiah chapter 1, just very quickly, it says this, Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. And and, uh, will you say this with me out loud? The children I raised and cared for have what? Rebelled against me. They have rebelled. These children that I have cared for and that I have loved. and, And who is our perfect model of a parent? It's God the Father. He's perfect, and yet we've still rebelled him, against him. And, and, you know, and, 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 and so if anybody knows the pain that comes from watching someone make hard choices or bad choices that are destroying their life, God gets this. And think about, think about our perfect model. As we talked about last week, how God parents us with this perfect balance of grace on one side, and also this scale is balanced perfectly of truth as well. And he balances that so perfectly in his model of parenting for us. And yet, what do we see in the Bible over and over again? We see that one story right after another just gives evidence of how we as God's children have repeatedly on a regular occasion rebel against his perfect parenting. The question that comes up whenever kids make bad choices, I get asked this. It's something that some of us presume we know the answer to. Here's the question. Whose fault is it? 
Whose fault is it whenever, you know, whenever a child makes a, goes and makes a terrible life choice? Is it the parents' fault? Is it, are they the ones to be at, at fault in this? And I think of the lady in the video. She was a youth worker, right, seeing a lot of children, seeing a lot of kids. And, 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 on, on, and some of those kids were making bad decisions and bad choices. And, and she began, as she shared so just very honestly, assuming that the parents must have done something. And then something happened that changed her point of view. What happened? It happened to her family, right? And everything changed. She began to understand that, you know, and I loved her just admitting her pride in this and her presumptuous kind of assertion was that, was that the parents had to have done something here. And here's something for us just to chew on this morning. We certainly live in a world that loves to shift the blame and deflect the blame and pass the buck and say it's somebody else's fault. Nobody wants to own responsibility for their own personal actions. So we blame environment. We blame circumstances. We blame other people. But here is the second thing that I want us to catch today, okay, is that the responsibility lies with the rebellious person. The responsibility lies with the person who has decided to rebel. Now, I want to say that there are certainly things that happen in a person's life that can make it easier for them to rebel. There certainly can be situations that happen in a family dynamic. Maybe there's a lot of hypocrisy that is seen and that, and that child or that person gets you know, put out with that. And, but ultimately, ultimately, the decision to rebel lies with the person who decides to live a life of rebellion. The bottom line, is we've, as it's always been and we will find in the scripture, is that it, the fault lies with the one who has chosen rebellion, which again is a reason why I just wanted to be very careful in this series to not suggest that if you'll just plug in this perfect EBC, Pastor Bart, Pastor Randy formula, you're going to have the Stepford family that's going to just be perfect and you're never going to have any problems, okay? Um, that's the last thing that we wanted you to experience in this series, Because early on in my parenting and in my personality flaw of trying to kind of control things and control every situation, you know, I discovered this. I'm not in control of a lot of things that go on in my kids' lives. I certainly want to be a great influencer in their life, but I am not in control. And so I started thinking early on, if I'll just plug in all these things I've heard other preachers say, and I've seen how they've kind of done it, and I do it perfectly that way, then here's what my prideful thought was. I will produce some very perfect children. And that's a very prideful thought. All right. The biggest problem with that is this. I wasn't considering a very important factor in all of this. You know what that factor was? The kids. And the fact that these kids have an opportunity and an ability to choose for themselves and to make choices. They have an individual will. And here's another key thought, okay? And this kind of flows right with the, along with this. Parents have great influence, but not ultimate control. I don't know if you were here for week one, but the first thing we said is that we are not in control. We just need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, we need you in our parenting. We need you in every aspect of our parenting. We've been saying it throughout the series that we are to be the ones who are the primary influencers. We want to be pouring Christ into their life. We want to be doing our responsibility and carrying that out of doing everything we can to give them the best chances to make good decisions, bringing them up in the Lord, not being passive, not passing it off to a youth pastor or youth worker or whatever, but us being the primary influencers, and I still stand by that. 
Okay, but here is what I know. Ultimately, we're not in control of them. Just thinking of biblically here, think of Genesis chapter 3. Think of Adam and Eve. Perfect environment. Perfect heavenly father. Certainly a perfect parent, right? Per, no, not even a sin nature yet to contend with. And what do we see if we were to read that story? We still see a person and two people that rebelled against a loving father. We still see that. Was God at fault for that? What do we see when we look in the Old Testament and we see over and over again Israel who is blessed by God and he pours his blessings out and what do we find in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament? What do we find over and over again? We see that they are continually rebelling against him over and over and over again. What do I find, if we're honest, in our own lives? What do I find in my life? God continues to pour his blessing out in my life and, and what happens on a regular basis? Let's be honest honest, we rebel, don't we? And we say, I'm not doing it that way, God. Does God force his way upon us? He gives us an opportunity to choose, all right? And so we see this over and over, and, and, and it's something that we, we, you know, you can just think of the scenarios where you can see a child who is in the worst possible environmental condition, and they still can grow up and make good choices and end up being a fantastic person. Flip that around. I've also seen some who have been given everything handed to them on a silver platter and, you know, and have all the opportunities to do some great stuff with their lives. And what do you see happen a lot of times? Some of those folks end up being the most rotten individual you could ever know. Are, 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 am I talking to the right people today? I mean, are you guys with me in this? I mean, you see that over and over again. The fault lies with the individual, and it is the individual who makes the choice of rebellion who will ultimately be accountable to God for their actions. So, so why am I taking so much time before we get into Luke to kind of set all this up? It's because I think this. I think that there are an enormous amount of parents who carry around a lot of false and unwarranted and unnecessary guilt that is in their life because of some of the choices that their kids have made. And I've seen that on many occasions and, and parents who can't get past that and feel like they are the failure, feel like they are the ones that have done this and they beat themselves up over and over again, unnecessarily beating themselves up, second guessing everything and they can't move out of their past and move into the future for what God has for them next. So I just feel like we needed to spend a few moments just kind of setting this up and sometimes I just want to say this very humbly before you. Sometimes it's our fault as pastors. Sometimes it's our fault as pastors if we presume that if everyone will plug in our perfect family formula, then everything will perfectly work out. And I just want to humbly say before you this morning that I'm sorry to you as a congregation if I've ever said things that have made you feel that way. Because it's just not true. And it broke my heart when I thought about that this week. Sometimes those of us who have been given children who are more compliant, who are a little more passive, like this one up here. Sometimes those of us who have been given kids that are like this, sometimes we get not only a, not a false sense of guilt, we get a false sense of pride in thinking, look at what I have done to make this one who she is. And the reality is, is I can only be an influencer. She still has choices to make. And the story's not over in her life. So here's some context, okay? What we've been saying is we want to get to the place of all of us saying, Jesus, all of us, no matter where we are in our parenting, grandparenting, influencing others in our lives, we just all have to humbly come before the Lord and say, we just need your help. 
We're not perfect in this. None of us are. We need your help. So all this being established, we're looking in Luke 15, famous passage. We know it as the prodigal son. You probably don't use that word prodigal very much in your life. Did you use it this week? Most likely not. Okay. So what does it mean? We know it as the prodigal son. We know it as the lost son. Probably the story's best called the forgiving father. Because that's really what the image that is portrayed is the, the loving father, the forgiving father. You could call it a tale of two sons. You could call it the begrudging brother. Okay, if you keep reading the story, you'll see that he was begrudging of, of the one who, who got his life turned around and gave his life back to his father. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, what's the context? They were really upset with Jesus. They were upset because they felt like he was lowering the bar for what it meant to follow God. And so they were being very critical of him. You know what they were criticizing him for? Hanging out with sinners. Being around those that were sinners. And they were saying, who are you? You know, what are you doing there hanging out with some of these sinners? And he wasn't partaking or participating with the sinners. He was just being amongst them and ministering to them. And so they started cr criticizing him and, and really attacking him for this. These religious people were all about rules, no relationship. And we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks. And what does that lead to? That leads towards rebellion. Jesus was showing the relational side of God. And he was showing the religious leaders that were furious with him how much God loves the lost cause, or what others would say is a lost cause. How much he loves the lost person, that he came not for those that were healthy, but for those that were sick, and that he comes for them, and that he loves them, and he wants to redeem them and restore them. So he started telling stories to his, this group of people, this Jewish, these Jewish folks that were listening. He tells a story of the lost sheep. And how a good shepherd would leave the 90 and 9 to go restore that one that is lost. He tells, the, and the celebration that happens, he tells the story of a lost coin and how a, a person lost a coin and, and turned that house upside down to find that coin and then they celebrated. And he's, he's revealing the heart of the father and then he's going to tell this touching story of a lost son and how he rebelled and how he came back to the father and the father celebrated this. Now in the story, okay, in the greater context of the story, which I don't really have time to get into all of it today, um, the older brother who represents the religious people, he gets upset with the father and he grumbles to the father and he grumbles about the father's grace and about his forgiveness and he's begrudging his, his brother in this greater context of the story, but I don't have time to spend uh, uh, any time on that today. We can look at that another time. But Jesus is going to show his listeners these principles. He's revealing God's heart for the lost and broken and revealing also, the heart of the critical and the, the hyper-religious, that's the overarching context, that God has a heart to restore us, not to destroy us, okay? But as we read the story, I want you to put on this lens of, if you're a parent maybe, put on this special pair of glasses and let's read it with the lens of, what does the Bible tell us about the rebel, what does the Bible tell us about rebellion and God's response to rebellion and, and the response that we ought to have when a person makes a choice like that? What does the Bible tell us? So put on those lens. Now, some of you may relate to the Father today, and your heart may break, and you may feel that hurt along the, the way the Father did. Some of you may be that rebellious person, and you may relate to that today. And my prayer for you is that you would see how deeply loved by God you really are. 
and how much he loves you and welcomes you home when you make that move to come to him. And then some of you, you may relate to the brother, okay? The fed up kind of brother there. You may relate in some kind of way, but let's read this Bible, this Bible passage together. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience and you need to know that some of the things that he's going to say are shocking to them. It shocks them. He gets their attention. Look at me in chapter 15, second part of verse 10. He says this, there is joy. There is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents and all God's people said what? Amen. Aren't you glad that they celebrate over you and over me whenever we repent? Hallelujah, right? There is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So what does that say? It doesn't matter how big this church ever gets. We will celebrate every person that comes to Jesus Christ. Amen. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Some of you are like, I would have knocked him out, right? (laughs) So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. That was shocking statement number one. That would be shocking even today, right, for someone to come to you. But in this Jewish culture especially, you didn't do this. You didn't come to the father asking this. Fathers were to be feared in this kind of culture. And he's coming, he's saying, Dad, in essence, what he's saying is this. I wish you were dead. As a matter of fact, give me everything that I have coming to me. Give me. He has a sense of entitlement. He has this this self-centered, narcissistic way of living. This is all about me. Give it to me now. I wish you were dead. I don't want you controlling my life anymore. And then he's going to say after a few days, I'm out of here. A few days later, his younger son packed all his belongings and, was moved, and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild and riotous living. This was a choice he made. I want you to see the father never drove him to that. He chose it. He chose it. He even stayed a few days after his father gave him what was not really entitled to him. He was not even the firstborn. About this time... His money, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. So there was an economic downturn, not only in his own pocketbook, but all around. Desperate times. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his field to do what? Say it with me, church, to feed the pigs. Now again, who is he talking to here? A Jewish audience. This was not exactly going to be the most kosher job that he was going to be having here. They didn't view bacon the way that we do, okay? And so this was a bad deal. The point Jesus was making was this young man was at a place of desperation now in his life. He had nowhere else to turn. And so he was so desperate he would do things that he he never would have even thought he would have done. He never was thinking whenever he was hauling his, you know, his bit of what his father had given him away, thinking, man, it won't be long. I'm going to be feeding and eating pig slop. Never crossed his mind, right? In any kind of way. And so he goes on and it says the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. He was hungry. No one gave him anything. Party was over. Friends were gone. Nobody had compassion. You know, you find out really quickly who really loves you. 
when he finally came to his, what does it say, church? When he finally came to his senses. This is a Jewish expression that, it, that indicated something had happened in this boy's life. You know what? It, it was expressing this, what's called repentance. When he finally came to a place of genuine repentance, it wasn't, it wasn't he was sorry where he was at. We'll begin to see as he begins to declare this, he's sorry for what he has done that led him to this place. It wasn't that he was just sorry for where he was at, but, but what his actions had led to. And he began to realize what had happened in his life. He said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I'm dying of hunger. He begins to reflect upon his father here and the character of his father. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. So he says, I realize this, that my greatest sin was against God. I've sinned against you as well. I've hurt others. And he's beginning to realize this. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And he says, please take me on as a hired servant. Now, he's in, in, instead of making demands and saying, give me, give me what I have come. Now he's just saying, can I, can I just even have a job? Could you even just put me to work? I'm not requesting any, I just am asking for work. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Now let me just say, I'm sure the father was often casting glances towards the horizon, keeping a watchful eye. I'm sure that was most likely happening, but I just really also feel led to say this, that I believe that the father also was carrying on with his life. He was carrying on with his business. Not just as sometimes we've been made to think sitting on the front porch and that's all he's ever doing is just sitting there on the front porch. He was moving on with life, probably living very prayerfully, but knowing that the child had made a choice that was his own choice. I believe this father was carrying on with life with prayerful, hopeful glances and he recognizes off in the distance his son's gate a long way off, and this is what it says whenever he sees him, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. In the, in the original language, that's a continual kissing. It's not just one. He embraces him. Shocking point uh, in this as well. It was undignified in this culture for an older man to run. It was undignified for him to set out and to run. Listen, a father didn't run to a son. You ran to the father. The father didn't go to you. You came to him. They were to be feared. This father, though, what did he do? He ran, filled with compassion, filled with love. Jesus is shocking the listeners. And the shock was not the son coming home. The shock was the grace and the gracious response of the father who had been wronged. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and am no longer worthy of being called your son. A big point that Jesus was making is that the son finally got it. He had to come to the place on his own of getting it. Dad couldn't make him get it. He had to get it himself, and his dad stops in mid-sentence. But his father said to the servants, Quick, 
bring the finest robe, and the robe was to cover his filth as he had been in the pig slop, right, on his journey in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring. That was a family status. Get a ring. Put it on his finger. Sandals for his feet. You see, slaves walked around with no shoes, and he said, you're no slave. You're my son. So put some some shoes on his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. Let's have a barbecue. Amen, right? For this son of mine who was, and this is key right here, this son of mine who was what? Dead. He viewed him as if he was dead, has now returned to life. And so there's a resurrection. And he is celebrating You see, again, I believe the father had mourned. I believe that he was probably most likely still mourning, but he he realizes this. He must make a choice to move forward with his life. And I believe this, that he had let his son go. He released him. He released him. It doesn't mean he wasn't praying. It doesn't mean he wasn't hurt. He was concerned. He was hopeful, but he had moved on and wasn't going to stay stuck in that place in his life. Suddenly the son is back and it's like a resurrection from the dead. He was lost, but now he is found. And then what does it say next? Say it with me, church. So the party began. The party began. Such a powerful story. And it really shocked the listeners. So many things that just didn't fit with their culture. But remember, Jesus is making a strong point for us today that all people are to be loved and reached by the Father. But there's some also some key things just in these last couple of moments I want you to think about and take away with you today. If you find yourself dealing with a rebellious person or there's a rebel that's in your life and you're not sure what to do or what are the boundaries, if, if you're going through this, you know, if I was sitting down with you and we were having coffee somewhere and you were like, Bart, I'm not sure what to do, I'd most likely, we'd go to this story and we'd say, let's look at this and let's try to learn something together from this. So when you're dealing with a rebellious person, here's the first thing that I see in this is when they insist on leaving, let them go. When they insist on leaving, let them go. I notice, and this has got to be one of the hardest things for a parent to ever do, but I see that this is what This father did. He didn't chase him. He didn't argue with him. He didn't fight about it. He let him go. The story never says he he chased him down, tried to persuade him otherwise. The story never says that he sat on the front porch, never doing anything else with his life. He had another son that needed his love. He had another son that needed him. And I'm not saying this to be calloused in any kind of way or saying that the father was calloused because the reality is we see that he clearly was not calloused And that whenever the son made the move to come home, he loved him and embraced him. But I think a key thing to think about is that the father had to carry on with his life. And I think that in many cases when we are dealing with someone who is rebellious, we can very easily let that person's actions dominate our lives. And if we do, that person who has chosen that kind of life can leave and, and we can become, it can be a catalyst to wrecking the relationships that God has in our life at this present moment. The people that need us right now. And you might have a spouse that needs you right now or a child, another child that needs you right now or a sibling that needs you right now. And sometimes it's those people that are still in our lives presently that end up getting punished the most whenever we focus so much on the one who has been the rebel. 
I'm not saying, and I don't believe this is saying, don't pray for them or we're not concerned for them or, you know, but I, I believe, you know, that if we don't move forward in our lives, we can let all of their sinful choices not only destroy them and it will, sadly enough, but we can also allow it to destroy us and our relationships with others in our family. And I've seen it happen so many times. I've seen it wreck marriages. I've seen it destroy and cause other children to be embittered. And, and think of the model father, God, longing for us to be in relationship with, with him. But think also about this. He doesn't neglect everyone else. And that he loves everyone else. And he carries on running the universe, right? He doesn't stop. He allows He doesn't allow the sinful folly of one person to dominate every conversation in all other relationships. When we say let them go, I, of course, am meaning age-appropriate. I'm not saying give your five-year-old a suitcase and send him out the door. Now, sometimes we want to do that, right? But remember this. We can influence, but we can't control. Here's the second thing. When things get rough... Don't run to the rescue. It's hard for us as parents at love, isn't it? When things get rough, and let me say, and they will get rough, because sin is only pleasurable for a season, and there are inevitable consequences that come along with it, and you can't stop those consequences. In fact, I heard another pastor say this, if we soften the blows, we enable and lengthen the rebellion. If we are the ones that are constantly softening the blows, we are in enabling and lengthening the rebellion. And we may feel, well, I'm just trying to love them. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is allow them to hit rock bottom and to realize and to come to the place of coming to their senses. Can you imagine in this story the father hearing all, all the money had been squandered and his son was in the pig pen of life and no son of mine will ever be in the pig pen of life. And, and he decides to go and rescue him or, or send him more money, uh, you know, or whatever. It doesn't happen in this story. It's the pig pen of life. It's the rock bottom that drove him to the place of realizing something's wrong in my life. And I blew it. If only I could go back to my father. God sees us making mistakes and he hurts when we make them because he knows the damage that we are doing to ourselves But you know what I I also recognize is that he lets us make mistakes. He lets us make mistakes and it hurts him. But I also know this, that when we, that he forgives and when we we repent and we seek his forgiveness, he offers it freely. But you know what happens? The consequences are still playing out in our life. He forgives, but there are still consequences. He doesn't rescue us from short-term consequences. We see that in King David when he chose to commit adultery with Bathsheba. God forgave him when he finally repented, but there were long-running consequences that wrecked his family to the very day that he died. God still loved him, though. God still loved him. So what do we do whenever we have someone that's doing this and, and is rebelling? How do we handle this? What can we do, Bart? Here's what we do. We pray. We never stop praying for them. We keep praying and we stay on our knees for them and we offer up prayers for them on a regular basis. And here's something that we pray and something that is a scary prayer, but we've got to trust that God's in control. We pray that God will do whatever it takes to speak to their heart. 
that God will get their attention in life. We, we have to become more concerned about the eternal consequences than we are the short-term consequences. And we say, God, I'm praying that you'll do whatever it takes in their life. We commit them to God. We give them over to God. We say, God, they're yours and they're out of my control, but I entrust them into your care and I know that you're sovereign and can work all things in their life. Even the bad choices they're making in their life, you can still use it. And here's what we also do and it's not one we like. We wait. We patiently wait and we wait and we rest in God and that's where some of you are today. Here's the final thing I want you just to see today is if they return, what do we do? If they return, we run to greet them. And the return and the way we handle the return is so critical. We run to greet them. He returned home to his father. And while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. He embraced him. He kissed him. He wasn't worried about being dignified. He wanted his son to know this, that I accept you. Now, here's the thing. And this is a great question, is, is accepting the same thing as approving? And, and acceptance says this, there's a difference in acceptance and approval of a person's behavior. Acceptance says, I love you, child, because you're my child. God made you, I love you, I will never stop loving you no matter what you do. However, I don't approve of the lifestyle that you're choosing right now because it's destructive. But I will never stop loving you. I will never stop embracing you. I will never stop hugging you. The language of acceptance is always physical. He ran, he hugged, he kisses, he's affectionate. There's affection there. You may say, I wasn't raised like that. We've got to change. Our kids need to know that we are affectionate with them because we love them. And we show that love through affection. And then he says this, let's have a party and celebrate that you're home. He didn't give him a sermon. He didn't say, I told you so. He, he could have. He probably was tempted to. How could you spend half of the wealth that I gave you? you know? But uh, uh, what we see is that he covered his filth with a robe. He restored him in the family. And he also gave him a position of sonhood again, sonship. Sitting at the family table. Now... I don't have time to get into what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. See the series back in the, in the summer, okay? Because here's something that I notice is that when the older brother is upset about this, I notice the father says, what are you upset? Everything I still have is yours. In other words, he spent all his. We're going to give him a place to live and we're going to love him and welcome him home. But here's the thing. He spent his inheritance, and so what that tells me is that there are still consequences. Here's what let's do. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Just because we're out of time today. The fact is, is this story shows how God deals with our rebellion. That's the primary purpose. We've taken matters into our own hands, and the Bible says this. We've all sinned. We've all done our own thing. We mess up our lives. But God says, when you are ready to come home and be a son, I will receive you. And that's where some of you are today, is that maybe you have rebelled against God. Aren't you thankful that God is a God of many, many chances? Amen, church? Haven't you experienced that in your life, that God is a God of many chances and so much grace? And this story has a happy 
ending, but for many of you, the jury is still out. You have a child that's out there, and you don't know if they're ever going to shape up. You don't know that they're going to turn out. Maybe they have rejected everything in your life, and they've hurt you deeply. Maybe some of them have ridiculed your values, and they reject your counsel and rebel against your authority, and you are hurt today. What do you do? And here's, here's all I can say is, Give your hurts to God this morning. I wish I could fix it for you. But I know that God wants to be close to you and walk with you in this. And he understands that pain. But you just begin to give that to him. He's the only one that can bring you the peace that you need in your life right now. You're not alone. Maybe you're the rebellious person and you recognize yourself as the son who's run away from God. Maybe you're in the pig pen of life or you're headed in that direction. Remember the story, the point of it is to show how much God loves you and loves those who are lost. And maybe you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you have a father that loves you and that he pursues you and he runs to you. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you can invite him to be your Savior right now and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and paying for my sin. Would you be my Savior? And in faith, I receive you in my life. I'm sorry for my sin. And I come to you today in faith. Lord, we thank you for your word and its truth. And Father, I ask you just to minister to your people today.